Once again, welcome to Rockfish Valley Baptist Church. If you are a visitor here this morning by chance, you're in good company because I'm also a visitor. Uh, this, is, this is my very first Sunday here, so welcome to all of our guests. I don't think guests normally are the ones who get on stage and deliver the message, but who knows, maybe if you show up next week, you'll be the one standing up here as well. Um, currently, I live in Raleigh, North Carolina with my beautiful Argentinian wife, so you got to miss my better half. I think I showed a couple people in the back uh, a picture of my family, so if you care to see that afterwards, just let me know. We have three boys, ages four, two, and nine weeks. So we are transitioning to a third child, so if you have been there, you can uh, resonate with us, and you can pray for my wife this morning, because she's dealing with all three of them uh, since yesterday when I left to drive up here. I drove up here yesterday evening, and I'll get back hopefully by 4 o'clock, 4.30 this afternoon. So uh, do pray for her, as I'm uh, not there with her right now. Currently, I'm the Mid-South Regional Director for a church planting network called the Table Network. Uh, So basically, I oversee church planting efforts all throughout the Mid-South region of the country. So even this would be kind of part of my territory. I just haven't made a lot of contacts up in this area or foreseen the need for necessarily a new church at this time. Uh, My family is eagerly planning and preparing to go plant a church ourselves sometime in the near future. And so I shared with some of you this morning in Sunday school that my family used to be international uh, missionaries with our international mission board. Uh, So this month is the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, and I I saw the poster back there, so I know that you guys are giving to that. So you're seeing a a real live former IMB missionary. Um, On behalf of all of those serving with our International Mission Board, we do thank you for all that you provide uh, to allow those to be overseas. And even though my family is no longer there, we have lifelong relationships with both nationals in the country where we served and other um, Americans who are over there spending a majority of their life. And so we do thank you and, and just know that your dollars Um, are highly valued and the work that they do to spread the gospel message. Um, But currently we're planning, preparing to plan ourselves somewhere within the North American Mission Board. They've outlined 32 cities. They call them SEND cities, not S-I-N, SEND, but SEND, like going to. And most likely we're looking at the Pacific Northwest region, maybe somewhere like Portland, Oregon, which is the least religious city in our country. Uh, Tremendous needs there. So you guys can be praying for that. Maybe Justin will have me back at a later time to share uh, something along those lines with you guys. Um, Before we get into the message, let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with great anticipation of the celebration of the coming Messiah. God, we thank you for sending Jesus to us in the form of a baby that could come, live a perfect life among us, and ultimately take our place on the cross. Lord, take the death that all of us deserved. I pray for those who are in here this morning that are not yet Christians. As we look at the coming of a Savior, they will see their need for you. And God, I do thank you for the people of Rockfish Valley Baptist Church and their love for you. I ask now that during this season of Advent, they would especially let their love for you be seen to those around them, Lord, whether it's their neighbor or someone else in their community. We love you, Lord. Amen. If you have a Bible, I'm going to go ahead and invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, So Luke is the third book in the New Testament. So if you get to the New Testament, you'll see Matthew, then you look at Mark, and then Luke. Uh, That's where we'll be this morning, and if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. I saw some, I believe, in front of your pew. There should be a Bible, and I didn't ask Justin permission to do this, but go ahead and keep that if you don't own a Bible, and I'll just take that up with him later. I will uh, give him the money. I'm sure he'd want you to have a Bible and a copy of Scripture, so feel free to take that home with you, and uh, someone here would would love to help you learn how to study that if you don't own a copy. It's that time of year again, right, that we all anticipate, or maybe we dread, depending upon our experience of growing up or or maybe some of us are mourning in this season because at, during this time of year, maybe it brings up a bad memory of a, a loved one that we lost during Christmas time. 
up the children in here. There's only a few, but they're probably uh, excitedly expectant of the gifts that they're going to receive here in just a couple of weeks. I know that my uh, two older boys especially, this is the first year they're really kind of grasping like the whole like, oh, you get gifts and I, I just ask for them and most likely they're going to be under the tree. And so every night before bed, my four-year-old looks at me and I'm kissing him on his head goodnight and he looks up at me and says, I want Legos. I want a dinosaur. I want a truck. And that's what he was saying for about two weeks. And then two nights ago, he, he said that and he said, uh, I want a boat and a ball. So he's adding more to his list because he's realizing that we haven't woken up and we haven't ripped open the gifts yet, so it's not here yet, but I keep seeing this Santa Claus figure everywhere, and there's a tree in our house, and so he's like, I better get all of these items in there, hoping, you know, in great anticipation of what he will receive. Um, The night we put the tree up, the next morning, they thought it was Christmas. They ran downstairs, and they were like, where's the presents? They're not here, so they're that excited, And, and and. this time of year, it's easy to get caught up in those things, right? There's parades, and there's parties, and there's good food that we shouldn't be eating, but we kind of make an excuse because it's only this time of year that we can easily just let the season just fly by. And, and that is our American culture, right? We're just busy, 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 go, go, go. Let's get all these things done. Let's get it all in, and then we're just going to move on. And so it's easy to forget, especially as those who are Christians, as those who follow Jesus, the whole reason for the season. And so this morning, I want to invite us to take a moment to slow down in this ever uh, fast-paced culture of it flying by, just to slow down and to remember, why is it that we even celebrate Christmas? Our, our gifts and parties, all that stuff is fun, and it's a great way to interact and fellowship with both those in Christ and those out of Christ, but why is it that we even celebrate Christmas? Today is the third week in what we traditionally call Advent, where we are in a season of the anticipation for the coming of Christ where he came in flesh as a baby and lived the life that we couldn't live and died the death that all of us in here deserved. And during Advent, we also look forward to his second Advent, where Christ will come and restore all things, making all things new. Today we look at one of the most familiar passages in the entire Bible, specifically for the Christmas season. We're going to see the birth of Jesus. But before we get into that passage, I do want to point out that in essence, the Bible is made up of two things entire Bible. So we see it made up of promise, and we see it made up of fulfillment. The Old Testament, the books that we would say are the ones that make up the promise, I mean the, uh, the promises. The New Testament are the fulfillment of those promises. And so I want us to look at two prophecies this morning. You don't have to turn those. You can reference them, maybe jot them down if you're taking notes. And I want to look at those promises, and then we will dive into Luke 2 and see the fulfillment of those. The first one comes from Isaiah 7. Verse 14, it says, which was, which was written roughly 700 years before Jesus was born, it says this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So this was the foretelling of the Savior coming to be the rescue for all of us. The second verse, our second passage, is Micah 5.2, which was written about 400 years before the birth of Jesus. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Who are you, too little to be among the clans of Judah? From you shall come forth the one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient of days. Ancient of days here meaning in Hebrew, from eternity. So here we are, hundreds to thousands of years later, and we see these two prophecies and a number of others coming into fruition in the passage that we're about to read. The book of Luke is written by Luke, who although he was not an eyewitness, he was a physician and he was a historian. 
he did a lot of study. He did a lot of work. If you know anything about doctors, they don't typically put their name on something unless they've done the research and put the time into it. I think of Duke University in the area where I live and, and the professors there who do the research before they'll come out publicly and put their name on something. That's what Luke did. So Luke gathered all the research. He went to eyewitnesses of these events of Jesus' birth, got all the facts, got all the details, and then he came and wrote this book for us. So turn with me now, and let's read in Luke 2, 1 through 20 the birth of Jesus Christ. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Let's stop right there before we move on to the next verses so we can recognize that what we are dealing with here is historical facts that are verifiable and undeniable. And so people all day long can say, well, I don't think Jesus was really born of a virgin, and um, you know, I know there was this, this guy, Jesus, but this history and the time that's set up for this story, we can go back and we can verify it and say this, this actually took place. This actually happened. And at this time in history, Caesar Augustus, who was a pretty big deal, at that time the most powerful person on earth, sent out a decree for this first registration for a census where Quirinius was governor. And at the start of this passage, we see how God uses governing powers to fulfill his purpose, pointing back to those prophecies that we just read. And as we will see, Mary and Joseph had to travel from a long distance. And so you kind of go, man, this is just inconvenient. Like, what is going on here? If this was us today, it'd be like having to travel across the country uh, for our, our census that our government's going to take. But we see that God is using those events through the government to fulfill his own purpose. Luke was careful to relate the major events of Christianity to those happening in world history, such as this event happening at the birth of Jesus. Continue on with me. It says, And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So here we are introduced to the earthly parents of Jesus, Mary and Joseph, who were likely actually teenagers at this time. And, and that time in history had been much earlier, probably 12, 13, maybe 14 years old, uh, that a couple would have been engaged to be married like this. And Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, but his ancestral home was Bethlehem because of being from the line of David, which is what was prophesied the Savior would come through. And so what we really see here is God continuing just to line up those circumstances so that the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy could come in Jesus. And verses, verse 5, it says, To be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Betrothed. What does that mean? That's, that's a pretty old term that we don't hear a, a whole lot anymore. It's a legally binding engagement only breakable by divorce. It sounds like they took engagement and marriage much more seriously in that culture than we do in our own culture today. Because remember, they weren't married yet, but they were, they were betrothed in this engagement that would have only been breakable by divorce at that time. And think about it especially the men in here. Think about it. When you were engaged to your wife, if she got pregnant, would you have probably left her? I think most of us would have at least considered it. I know that if my wife all of a sudden came to me and said, I'm pregnant, I'd been like, whoa, whoa we're not even married. You know, what happened? What went on? So Joseph, in man's eyes, has every right to follow through with the divorce. But thankfully, God revealed it to him that this was the coming Messiah. My wife and I had a not completely similar circumstance, but a somewhat similar circumstance as far as the, the being betrothed. We were legally married. We had our civil ceremony six months before we ever consummated our marriage. 
So yeah, I'll just let that sink in for a minute. We won't, we won't camp out here too long. But my wife's from Argentina. And in order to get paperwork to go through, we had to, I had to fly there, do a legal ceremony, and then I flew back, finished college, and then I went back and, and we had our, our church wedding. And so at that time, here I am, a senior in college, my last semester, and I'm like, I'm married, but I'm not married. This is really weird. And it, in my mind, our engagement at that point would have been only breakable by divorce. We see in these verses that the other guests had arrived first, leaving them no room in the inn. So the people, when they arrived in Bethlehem, they obviously didn't recognize the importance of their arrival. But would any of us? You know, this couple comes in town, they, they get here late, and we're kind of going, well, well, everyone needed a place to stay. Like, why didn't you guys start your travel a little bit earlier? Why didn't you, why didn't you arrive a little bit earlier? You know, sorry, there, there's not any room in this place. You'll have to move on and see if you can find room somewhere else. Imagine a non-married couple comes knocking on your door on Christmas Eve. They say, we're engaged. Uh, she's pregnant. We, we've, we've never actually slept together. But can we have a place to say, this is the Savior? I mean, obviously today we'd say, someone's off the rocker. We may help them get to the hospital, uh, or we may take them to the nut house. But even in this time, you know, those who, who didn't believe these prophecies, they were probably thinking that same thing. Like, oh, okay, yeah, that's the Savior, you know, this unmarried couple, and she's pregnant, you know, we, we, most of us have probably looked at them in judgmental way, and been like, no, they're, sorry, you got to move on. And so don't be too quick to judge those who didn't give them a place. And think with me for a moment, the greatest miracle in the history of the world took place in an, an obscure barn, or most likely a cave, away from the limelight. Isn't that strange? It, it's, if you were going to be the Savior of the world, don't you think you would come in a much grander way? There'd be a big announcement, uh, you know, all of the news stations would be there, CNN, Fox News, all of them would be on you. But no, our God chose the Savior of the world to come away from the limelight. And we're going to see why here in a little bit. Larry King, who is now retired, but a lot of you probably are familiar with him, uh, most famous for his former CNN show, Larry King Live, was once asked this question, and usually he's the one interviewing, but he was asked this, if you could interview anyone in the history of the world, who would it be? He said, Jesus Christ. He was then asked, if you could ask him one question, what would that question be? King responded, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born, because the answer to that question would define history for me. King's right. The answer to the question, was Jesus actually virgin born, should define history for all of us. And that's something that people in my area in Raleigh will have conversations about Christmas, and you know, we're, we're looked at as pretty ridiculous, if you think about it, for believing that our Savior was born of a virgin, because that just doesn't happen every day. But if it's true, and I believe that it is, and I believe that most of you in here believe it is, that should change history for everyone. And so I always encourage people to, to take those facts, to study the truth, and to see if, that, if you come to the conclusion that is real, that should change your response to the Savior, Jesus. Continue on. Uh, we're going to read about the shepherds and angels, starting in verse 8. It says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you the good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The God of the universe chose some of the most unlikely characters to reveal the coming of the Christ. He chose a bunch of shepherds who were, actually I was driving up, I was thinking about this, I could see shepherds, I know it's mostly, I think, cattle out here, but like shepherds just out in one of these fields, you know, with the mountains around them, just kind of out in the middle of nowhere. That's who he chose to come and reveal himself to. Once again, this is not how we would choose, if we were God, this is not how we would choose to come and announce our arrival. This would be today like God coming, and the first person he reveals himself to being maybe a, a plumber or a man that picks up the trash. 
Now, please don't mishear me. If that's your profession, those are noble professions. But I think you'd all agree with me. Isn't that kind of strange that um, the Savior of the world, that would be the first person he comes to? Think about when someone important, I mean, the President of the United States, that's not the first person he goes to. Uh, the Pope comes over. The first person they go to look for necessarily isn't that, you know, important people. So we think that's very strange. Why would the God of the universe choose shepherds of all people? From the beginning, God shows us that he was willing to take the lower place and humbly come to us. I mean, how much more humble can you get coming as a baby? It's pretty humbling. And unto who was Jesus born and amongst who? The humble, the lowly, the expected ones. See, Jesus takes everything and he flips it upside down how we would naturally do things ourselves. We see that throughout Scripture whenever they talk about dinner parties, for example. Who do you invite to the dinner party? You know, the people to be seen. But in Scripture, it flips it on its head and invite those who you would never invite, who no one else would ever invite. In the New Testament, we see Jesus as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And so I think there's even a foreshadow here in Luke 2 of these shepherds that he comes to, that Jesus is our shepherd. We are his sheep. Sheep are kind of dumb. We're kind of dumb. We fall into sin. But he's the good shepherd who ultimately, yes, he comes as a baby to us, but then he lays down his life as the perfect man and our Savior. At just the report of the angels, the glory of the Lord shone around them. And now just imagine that. In verse 10, we see that the gospel being proclaimed, it's the proclamation of the gospel that the glory of the Lord is present, that the glory of the Lord, that the presence of God is there. And if, if you're like me, you've probably had times where you felt like God's just not near me, and then you've probably had other times where you could really feel the presence of God in your life, whether it was a sermon that you heard or whether it's the time that you, moment of salvation for you, maybe it's when you got baptized. This, and that doesn't even capture, but this is that type of presence. Continue on in verse 11, it says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. I'm confident that the shepherds could not fully grasp an experience or an announcement like that one. You know, all of a sudden there's this angel and says, Hey, the Savior is here. This is how you can go find them. You know, I don't think they could grasp that. But I'm not sure that many of us could either. If we were the shepherds, if God had placed us in that time in history, I don't think that we could have grasped it either. That this baby boy born in Bethlehem is the Messiah, the Lord God himself. This is something to celebrate. In these verses, we see what I call the paradox of the incarnation. A Savior, Christ the Lord, a babe wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger. These phrases just seem impossible. Once again, you don't think about your king and your savior coming as a baby. The wonder and the mystery of the incarnation is found in these phrases. Babies are helpless. I've got a nine-week-old baby at my house, and I was, as I was studying this passage, I thought, what if my house caught on fire tonight when I go home? What if it caught on fire? Is the baby going to come and get me and my wife and wake us up and save us? No, that's ridiculous. I'm going to have to run, most likely myself or my wife, and we're going to have to pick up the baby along with our other two children to get them out of the house and get them to safety. But here we see that God sends a baby to us, and this baby is going to be the Savior for all mankind. Have you ever thought why God would choose to come in such a humbling way as a little helpless baby? It was in the simplicity and lowliness that Jesus began his earthly life, and he continued in that way throughout the majority of his life. It's not really as if Jesus was born this way and then people started recognizing him and then he lived this luxurious lifestyle. 
No. He always kind of lived this type of life, did he not? We see this in his friends, too. Who did Jesus pick to be his closest friends? Ordinary fishermen. He didn't go to those that were the most attractive, who had the most friends, just some ordinary guys who would fish for profession. And we consistently see Jesus dealing with people in ordinary occupations, and his parables were drawn from observations of everyday people. This should be an encouragement no matter what ordinary occupation that we find ourselves in this morning. The God of the universe came to save us, and he would have chosen us to be those close friends. We are not called to be the person on the stage, the person in the limelight proclaiming the truth, but we are all called to proclaim the truth in the everyday stuff of life, no matter what that be, no matter what profession, no matter where you live or what stage of life that you are in. Verse 13, it says, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We see a picture here of thousands of angels, a legion of angels who arrive, and they're proclaiming the news about Jesus, the omnipotent Son of God. A crucial point we see in verse 14 is that we don't get to choose if we glorify God because he is the Prince of Peace, not us. He is the one on the throne, and those with whom he is pleased to call himself will his gift of peace be found. And may you find it this Christmas season if you have not found it before. We must look to the incarnation for our reality, but only through those in whom God finds favor is there peace. In verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. The angels here are messengers of the good news, just as we are to be today. But it is God himself that reveals who he is to the shepherds. I am able to sleep at night because I realize that if I am faithful to do what the angels did, to share the message of the gospel, then it's up to God to do the rest. And so sometimes we get all caught up on, well, I haven't seen enough people saved, I haven't done this. God calls us to be obedient. If we look at his great commission, we are to be obedient to proclaim the truth of the gospel, especially this time of year. We should stand up and say, the Savior has arrived. And it's up to proclaim this truth of the gospel, what God did on our behalf. But it's ultimately up to God to save the people. We are to be faithful to the message. Verse 16 through 18, it says, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Even in the commonplace circumstances of the birth of Jesus, it was a moment of awe and wonder to those who, who it was revealed. How does it say that they went? It says they went with haste. I looked up the word haste just to make sure, did a quick Google search. It says haste, excessive speed or urgency of the movement. When is the last time you went with haste to share the gospel? The love of Jesus with your neighbor next door, the coworker next to you, or the refugee among us. Now, how many of us is it with haste and with excitement? Now, we do it with everything else in life, do we not? I, was, I shared with the Sunday school class once again this morning. I'm a Carolina Panthers fan because I'm from North Carolina. I grew up in Charlotte. We're having a great season. You can just tell in my excitement already. 12-0, and 0, we're going for 13-0 and 0 today. So you see, I can get excited about that, and I can go on and on about why the Panthers are so good this season. But then why is it sometimes we flip it over and we, we get to the things of, of the Bible, and it's almost like we get boring, or, or we don't have that same excitement. Like, yeah, you know, come to church. Well, no, you shouldn't have to come to church. Let me, let me t- proclaim this message to you now. Sure, come to church after that, but let me proclaim that Jesus has come as a baby and he lived this life. 
that we could not live, and he died the death that we deserved, that I deserved, and that you deserved. He came in our place. In 19, it says, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. So we see Mary taking a moment here to meditate on what God had told her through the angel. The mother of Jesus, overcome with realization that Jesus, her baby boy, is the rescuer and savior of the world. I can't imagine what Mary's going through. I just, you know, I think about my wife and how much she loves her precious babies, but just that, I mean, I imagine Mary was just overwhelmed as she meditated, like, whoa, this is the savior of the world and why God chose me to be his earthly mother. Think back to either the first time you heard the gospel or the first time the truth of the gospel really hit you and how you pondered it in your heart. You know, I grew up in church, so I heard the gospel week in and week out, but I remember at the time that I, it hit me that I really understood it. And there was such a difference. I just had to kind of sit back and just ponder, like, why would the Savior, why would God send Jesus to die for me, to take away my sins? That's the closest thing I can think of to, to compare to the realization that Mary had here. The realization of the overwhelming love that God has for each of us. It says in 20, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. So we see Mary take a moment to be contemplative in the previous verse. And here we see that those shepherds are now moved to action. The Savior of the world has arrived. Sin can now be forgiven, and the kingdom is coming, and the king has arrived. So once the shepherds had seen the Jesus, they've been glorifying and praising God, which was only the proper response. But we don't see the, the, the shepherds stay there and just bask in the moment forever. The shepherds had their great experience. They went to the stable, the stable to verify and to have their experience with the Savior with their own eyes. But we see that they could not linger. They could not stay there. They returned to their familiar pastures and the tending of sheep. And so they had this great moment in this mountain high, and they turned around, and they're back in the field with the, the sheep kind of going, oh, well, did, that, did that just happen? Like, I'm back in the mundane things of life again? You know, I think that happens at Christmas time for us. We're all expecting, excited, and Christmas Day hits, and then we're like back in January, and it's like the slowest month of the year for some reason. And then we're like, oh, I'm just back at my job. <laughs> this, what happened to all that excitement that was going on? But that's, that's just everyday life. But we're to continue to proclaim this message in the mundane things of life. We don't see the shepherds camp out for the moment, waiting for the second advent of our Savior. We don't see them just going, okay, we're just waiting on Jesus. He's coming back again. But we too, like the shepherds, are called to return to the familiar, the normal, the mundane, but with the exciting news of Jesus' first coming and his return. This points to the Great Commission in Matthew 28 that is not all about those missionaries that we send out, but all of us, that we all are called to be missionaries, whether we're in college, whether we're retired, whether we are in high school, it doesn't matter. We're all called to be missionaries. And we are to go to the world just as Jesus came to us. We, we see a Savior who's always coming to us. We are to go to the world. I love gathering as a church. I love Sunday mornings. I love the opportunity to preach. I love it when I can just fellowship with believers. But we can't camp out here, can we? What are we called to do? We're called to open those doors, and we're called to go out and take charge as a light, as a witness to the communities that God has placed us in. To wrap up, we see that from the beginning, Jesus' birth to the end, Jesus' death, at no point do we see Jesus aligning himself with the who's who of his day. The winner's circle, the in crowd, the rich, the famous, the powerful, the important, prestigious, or noteworthy, whether religious or non-religious, we just don't see Jesus doing that. Rather, we see Jesus align himself with losers, with nobodies, the marginal, the, the last kid that's picked in the kickball game. 
The church of Jesus is the collective group that has publicly admitted that we have lost at life. We should be that group that says it's over, that we are dead in sin, and that Christianity is the loser circle and the winners need not apply because we are the group that should be humbly saying we recognize our sin. We recognize that we are nothing apart from our Savior, Jesus.